If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com slash Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Valid one time on Friday. Participating McDonald's through 1231.24. Excludes tax. Must update rewards. By the time you get to 1815, the national debt's about 200% of national income, which is much, much higher than it is now. And then you get the 19th century. The 19th century is totally reversed, because so far as the UK is concerned, the 19th century is almost entirely peaceful, and the debt ratio just goes down. That was Martin Slater discussing the history of the national debt. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Since the 2008 financial crisis, the size of Britain's national debt has been a subject of intense political debate. But the national debt is not new, and nor is this the first time that it's been a cause of concern. To discuss the long and fascinating history of government borrowing, I met up with Martin Slater, an Emeritus Fellow at Oxford University, and the author of the new book, The National Debt, A Short History. When in history does the national debt first start to be talked about? 
Well, there's a pivotal moment which is around about 1690s, and a lot of people will refer to the founding of the Bank of England, which is 1694, as the real start of the, the modern national debt. Uh, obviously, there was a public debt before that. Kings, right the way through the Middle Ages, borrowed. But that was very much less systematic, and it was much more a question of uh, really the kings borrowing personally as kings. And uh, it was really quite a risky business for the lenders because kings were very unreliable. They were inclined to default. And when they died, their successors might indeed repudiate their debts. But the really big change in the national debt really comes about with the Glorious Revolution in 1688, which is when you really get the kind of final resolution of the, the squabble about who actually controls the money king or parliament, and then parliament really conclusively says, well, we control taxes, we control borrowing, and then the government borrowing is really parliament's borrowing, and the security is essentially parliament's control of the taxation system. And if the king at that point has lost control of the taxation system, therefore can't really have a credible repayment strategy if they, the king borrows a lot of money. Essentially, from that point of view, the, the debts have to go through parliament and they become fairly soon pretty well permanent because there is no termination to the life of the parliamentary system, really. A couple of questions about this, this first period of the 1690s. Firstly, do we know how much the national debt was at that point? And secondly, who were the creditors? Oh, well, the the national debt at that point was relatively small uh, in in the money of their day. We're, we would probably be talking about only a few million pounds. Um, and indeed, even relative to the economy at the time, that was not as, as large as we've, we're accustomed to national debts at the moment. Uh, the people who were possibly lending money were essentially City of London merchants and bankers um, of coming from various backgrounds. Um, there's quite an influence of, of Dutch uh, merchants and bankers, because the, the Dutch had really been uh, earlier pioneers in the whole business of banking and uh, lending to governments. Um, but in, in, you know, in general, these were, these were people who, who were the merchant classes, and they were very much in favour of the, the new regime. And so there was quite a, uh, a symbiosis between the government and the financial interests that were supporting it. Indeed, you know, some of the some people who were rather less keen on the change in government sort of viewed this as really quite a considerable sort of political financial conspiracy. What did these initial creditors see as the advantage of lending to government? Was it something to do with the stability? And the likelihood of repayment. Well, yes, ultimately. Although uh, it did take some years, I think, for Parliament really to establish that it was going to be very reliable. I think lending to any government is is a bit difficult because there's always the question of the government is a very powerful player. Why on earth should the government repay? 
Well, partly I think it was because that there was this um, sort of intermingling of the financial and political interests, so that the bankers also had a foothold in Parliament, and a lot of MPs similarly had interests in the city, so that they they understood each other quite well. And the other reason, of course, was that that London was a very big financial centre. All these merchants had to have large amounts of cash essentially just lying around to pay their bills as and when they, they came in. And of course, that was a great waste of resources to the bank, to, to the merchants. And when the Bank of England was created, this was essentially a, a wonderful opportunity for them because they could deposit their cash in the Bank of England. The Bank of England would then lend it on to the government and they, they would earn interest on their cash. But essentially, the Bank of England could offer them exactly almost the same liquidity as if they had the cash at home, because uh, the way a bank works, obviously not everybody wants their, their money back at the same time. So in a way, it was almost a marvellous conjuring trick. And indeed, again, you see the, the rather landed gentry who, who were very suspicious of this did indeed think of it as a pretty much a, a, a almost fraudulent confidence trick that, that they were going to end up on the wrong side of. In your book, you've traced the evolution of the national debt over several centuries. What patterns have you noticed about when the national debt tended to become high and when it was potentially lower? Is there any sort of common themes we can draw? Oh, oh there's a very common theme right, right the way through until very recently, and, that, and that's simply war and peace. What you see, particularly if you, if you draw a graph of the ratio of the national debt to national income, in other words, how, how relatively important is the national debt to, uh, to the economy? You see, there's a, a, an almost steady rise all the way from the end of the 17th century up to essentially 1815. And the reason for that is that that whole century is just a whole series of wars against principally France. And it is the ability to borrow money that really enables the British government to conduct these wars, essentially conditions where they end up at the end of 1815. So, so you get a, a peak from almost nothing, as I say, in about 1688. But by the time you get to 1815, the national debt's about 200% of national income, which is much, much higher than it is now. And then you get the 19th century. The 19th century is totally reversed because so far as the UK is concerned, the 19th century is uh, almost entirely peaceful and the debt ratio just goes down. And it goes down from this 200%. And in 1914, it's got down to about 25%, so pretty well insignificant. And then, of course, more wars come along. First World War, Second World War, the thing goes right up again. 240% by 1945. And then the same thing happens again. After 1945, it just comes down again very rapidly till about 1970s, 1980s, when we're back down to about 50% or so. And the very interesting thing about these these downswings in the debt ratio is that they don't really occur because the government is actually paying the national debt off. It's mostly the effect of well, in the 19th century, it's, it's the effect of economic growth. The national debt in money terms is almost the same in 1914 as it was in uh, 1815. But the economy grew about sixfold over that period. And that, that, that 
accounts for this relative uh, decline in the ratio. And in 1945, the period after that, um, well, you get economic growth and you get inflation. So this process happens twice as fast. Um, so, yes, there, there's this, this incredible sort of mountain and peak and valley of, of wars and things like that. Since that time, uh, yes, it's a little more difficult to, to follow the vagaries of the national debt. They haven't been quite so uh, pronounced and they're much more to do with sort of changing political fortunes and indeed most recently, of course, the 2008 financial crash has uh, put in a little twist. You mentioned several wars there, the wars against the French in the 18th and 19th centuries and the two world wars. I mean, a common thread there is that Britain emerged triumphant in all of those. Could we see Britain's ability to raise credit in this way as, as actually contributing to those victories? Was Britain better at managing its national debt than, say, some of the countries it was fighting? Oh, yes. Yes, I, th- I think that it was absolutely essential to, to the British success. And different people viewed that differently, of course. You see, the people who thought this was a favourable outcome uh, thought that, yes, the, the national debt, the, the ability to borrow these sums was es- essentially Britain's most important strategic weapon, really. You know, the equipping of all the fleets and armies, very expensive business, couldn't possibly have been done without a lot of borrowing. Uh, on the other side, of course, you had a lot of people who said, well, you, well, that's just the problem. You see that it's the ability to borrow these sums has caused the, the great upsurge of militarism and foreign adventures, and the, the, the country would be a lot better off, be a lot more peaceful if it, if it didn't do that. Um, and as for its rival, you see, the, it, there's an interesting story, almost a sort of totally different story of what's happening in the French public finances in the 18th century, because just at the same time as the British were, were making their big play for constitutional monarchy in 1688, uh, Louis XIV in France was going in exactly the opposite direction. And he dismissed all his ministers. He refused to call parliament and had an absolute monarchy. And that made it rather difficult for the French financial system to move forward from its rather cumbersome medieval roots. And so all the way through the 18th century, you had a very odd, eccentric French tax system. Taxes were really contracted out to a vast array of tax collectors and money lenders. Even the the French ministers of finance effectively had very little idea of how much they were in debt, if they were in debt. Uh, When you get to the revolution, when finally the state effectively runs out of money and the king has to recall parliament, then the first thing that the Estates General do is is call for an account. <laughs> and this is considered in France to be an extremely ambitious venture. And uh, people were sort of fairly horrified by what what was actually produced in the way of accounts. But even that was, was pretty much a, a guess at the time. And the, the actual upshot during the French Revolution was that the uh, class of people who were involved in tax collecting in this kind of way were were the ones that are most heavily targeted by the revolution. You talked earlier about how the national debt was very high after the wars, I think, after the Second World War, potentially the highest in relative terms that yes, it ever right. was. Mm. I mean, nowadays there is a lot of political anxiety around national debt. Mm. Was there a similar situation in the 1940s? 
Interestingly, not not so much in the 1940s. Um, after, say, 1815 and through the 18th century, people were generally terribly worried about the national debt. Strangely, although after 1945, that was really the, the absolute peak of the, the national debt problem, um, people weren't terribly worried so much about the national debt as such. And the reason for that has got a lot to do with the advent of Keynesian economics during the war, uh, whereas the, the general consensus or opinion in, in economic policy beforehand was, well, government policy must always be in favour of a balanced budget and it must be a jolly good idea not to have any borrowing. When you get the Keynesian era coming along, then the the aim in economic policy is to say, ah, well, the government deficit should really be determined by essentially what is the macroeconomic context of the day. If we need a bit of stimulus in the economy, we should go into deficit. If, on the other hand, we need to rein the economy back, we should go into surplus. This will inevitably have an effect on the national debt. So the national debt ideally will go in cycles as we, we, we go over the cycles of the policy. But that's really only a secondary matter. It's not the primary cause of, of government policy. And um, so they were really quite relaxed about it in 1945. What they were much more concerned about was the balanced payments, which is sort of exports minus imports rather than taxes minus expenditure. And uh, that was really what occupied government policy through, say, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And that actually has an impact on the national debt. Uh, principally because, unusually for Britain, they ended up after 1945 with a debt to the USA, which was denominated in dollars. Normally, the British debt is denominated in pounds. And that, if you're trying to manage a national debt problem, is much, much easier because essentially the government controls the supply of pounds. Uh, you know, if, if it really comes to the crunch, the government can just instruct the Bank of England to produce the money to pay off nominally the debt. Well, this will have macroeconomic consequences, but legally they would have performed their right function. But if you're actually borrowing a foreign currency and during during both the First World War and the Second World War, they borrowed quite heavily from the USA. And, and that had to be repaid in dollars. Now, how do you get hold of dollars? Well, particularly if you start from a situation where the foreign reserves don't have any dollars, the only way you get hold of that is essentially by running an export surplus with the USA consistently for many years. And uh, given the circumstances of the economy, the economy at the end of 1945 was not in a very good state. You know, most of uh, the industrial equipment was obsolete and hadn't been maintained during the war. On the other hand, the American economy was terribly efficient. So that was a very tall order, even though the American debt nominally speaking, was only a relatively small proportion of the total debt. That was really the thing that drove the British concern with the balance of payments all the way through that early post-war period, really, until, until you get to about 1980 when you get the Thatcher period, which is, again, a, a rather change. Clearly, one of the consequences of having a high national debt is interest payments. Mm. How burdensome for the British economy were the interest payments after, say, the Second World War and other times where the national debt's been really high? Well, again, after the Second World War, despite the fact that the, the national debt itself was very high, the burden of interest payments was not that high because the government 
pursuing its Keynesian policies was maintaining a lot of control over the banks and keeping interest rates very low. In fact, that was one of the lessons they had sort of learned from their experience in the First World War was that the government did have a power to really control the interest rates so long as you could control what the banks did with their reserves. And the reason why the national debt was not as much of a problem as you might have imagined was was because of this. They were really effectively making the banks pay the national debt off by insisting that the banks held very large quantities of the national debt as part of their reserves, when in fact this wasn't very profitable for the banks. And indeed, as, as inflation was going on, the national debt, the real value of their reserves was going down. So that was a, a way in which the Keynesian policies of the time actually uh, avoided a serious problem. And that was very much in contrast to what happened at the end of the First World War, when, again, there was a big debt peak. Uh, but the interest rates were also very high. And you get a situation where I think in the 1920s, I think there's one year when the interest payments on the national debt amounted to something like 40% of the government budget. At the moment, despite the fact that people say that national debt is a great deal of problem, the interest payments on the, our national debt are only about 5 or 6% of the national budget. The interwar years obviously were characterised by a lot of economic difficulties in Britain. Could we put some of those down to the huge national debt? They would have been difficult anyway. I think the the First World War essentially impoverished practically everybody in Europe, absolutely disrupted all the kind of economic relationships. So it's bound to be difficult. But he also left behind uh, an an incredible legacy of interlocking indebtedness. You know, one country owed another country, that country owed another. These debts were essentially, by the end of the war, pretty unrealistic. Nobody was really going to be able to pay them off, but nobody was willing to give up their nominal claims to them. So so there was a great deal of difficulty, somewhat similar to the kind of the negotiations in the euro between countries like Greece and Germany and and France, uh, you know, that there's obviously a problem. It's not really ever going to be soluble to everybody's satisfaction, but nobody's going to be first to to give ground in, in that kind of way. And so there were the, these big debts. And of course, it did constrain government policy in an awful amount in the 1920s and 30s, because they had this enormous debt. The, the national debt had gone up from about 600 million to 6,000 million by the end of the First World War. So it had gone up sort of 10 times during that that war. And uh, uh, at the end of the war, the general consensus opinion was that, that really government policy should be trying to get back to the normality that they thought existed pre-1914. So that involved getting back to the gold standard, maintaining the exchange rate at what had now become a a somewhat unrealistic level. And so this involved keeping the interest rates high. And they also had a very serious problem, a very short run, that treasury bills and almost basically kind of government bank overdrafts that were essentially recallable within a few weeks. And so they had to keep interest rates high to stop all that suddenly being withdrawn. And that caused a a very great difficulty in in actually 
using government policy in any way to combat the depressive effects of, uh, of the 1930s. In particular, perhaps the saddest thing uh, was uh, you know, what happened to the Labour Chancellor, the first Labour Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, Snowden, who in fact turns out to be perhaps the most fiscally conservative Chancellor of the Exchequer of the 20th century. And he was so insistent on maintaining fiscal rectitude that he must sort of pay the interest, we must actually start to repay even the national debt, that this actually split the Labour government. And uh, Snowden is now, in, in Labour Party mythology, is essentially viewed as one of the great class traitors. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Another thing that you mentioned in one of your previous answers was the fact that the governments have never really paid off national debt. It's just changed relative to, to the wider economy. Is there any particular reason why governments have never chosen to pay the national debt? Is it because there's always something some more political value to spend the money on. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, you know, if you are a politician, uh, you're, you're always short of money. And there are things that you can spend in real terms. You know, you can spend the money on the Navy or the Army in the 19th century. These days, you can spend it on hospitals and schools. Because if you're spending it on repaying the national debt, then there is nothing really to show for it, except, obviously, you are saving in the very long run a lot of interest payments and therefore tax payments in the future. But, you know, the electorate has rather short time horizons and uh, and as a politician, you've got short time horizons. You're not going to be around in office by the time these things are coming along. So, so yes, it's very difficult, I think, for a politician to, to really see that there's much percentage in, in paying off the national debt. And indeed, unlike you and me, you know, who, who clearly in the end have to pay off our own individual debts because the lenders know we are mortal and they, they want us to pay it off before we die. Well, the country never actually dies in that sense. The individual citizens die off, but they are replaced by more citizens. And of course, if the, if the economy is growing and if the population is growing, 
actually, in the long run, the uh, country can afford to maintain increasingly bigger debts without actually really making themselves look any great riskier than, than before because it's the same kind of proportion to the the size of the economy. So, yes, interestingly, around about 1750, this is actually officially recognised. Henry Pelham, who was prime minister after Walpole, pulled off a great coup of reforming and consolidating the national debt of the time. The early years of the national debt, the debt had been contracted in an all sorts of different assortment of debts. There was sort of annuities for life or long periods of time. There were lotteries, there were even tontines. But um, Pelham uh, actually sort of consolidated them all into a single government security, which is called consoles, short for consolidated. And this was a permanent security. The rules about this were that simply the government did not promise to pay back the sum of money at any time. It just promised it would continue to pay 3% forever on this national debt. And this was a very simple device. And it actually worked because the by this time, the, the people who were lending money to government, well, they didn't actually really want to be repaid, mostly, they they just wanted a very secure, long-term investment. And so long as the government was totally reliable in paying the interest, then that was okay. If, strangely, you did need to, to get your money back, that was all right. The government wouldn't give you your money back. But by now, we had an organized second-hand market in the bonds, you know, what we now call the bond market. So you could get your money out if you wanted to. But the government would never be embarrassed by people saying, well, hey, isn't it time you actually paid off the national debt? The danger, of course, was that given that the government has now got no kind of, no kind of discipline making it repay the national debt, then there's obviously no likelihood really that anybody's going to pay it down. And given that the government had, has a habit of getting into wars every few years, then the danger is that national debt simply, there's only one way it can go, and that is up. <laughs> and indeed, that's what it did do for the last, uh, last half of the 18th century. Coming on to the present day, compared to various historical periods, how high is the national debt nowadays? Well, relative to national income, uh, at the moment, the debt is about 90% of national income. So that's much higher than it has been in the past few years. Before the 2008 financial crisis, uh, it was about 30 to 40%. And then at that point, it was thought of as being fairly benign. There was no great difficulty about that. But since the 2008 financial crisis, it has grown very rapidly. Two reasons. One was the actual bailout of the banks, which essentially what happened was the government created lots of government bonds to hand over to the banks to bolster their reserves in exchange for equity shares in the banks. But unfortunately, the equity shares, of course, were worthless because the banks were effectively bust. Uh, so, so that was a big one-off push of the national debt. And the other problem, which is actually rather more significant in the long run, is that in the years running up to 2008, the government had, had been very fortunate in getting very large tax revenues out of the, the very high incomes and the very high profits of the boom years. Uh, and these, of course, rather evaporated very quickly. And as we know, also, uh, high income 
individuals and companies have become very adept at avoiding tax. And so this has produced a sort of recurrent deficit problem that, that the government is still not uh, on top of. And, and that, that's what people are worried about. But at the moment, we're, we're at 90%. Uh, as I said a little while ago, in 1945, we were at 240% of national income. In 1815, we were about 200% of national income. So these are not, historically speaking, big figures. If you, if you look at a cross-section of countries at the moment, 90% is on the high side. We're about 90%. The USA is about 90%. Germany is a little lower. One real outlier is Japan, which is indeed at about 200%. Um, and um, because there, there are quite a lot of individual characteristics of the Japanese economy, that doesn't, as a debt problem, it doesn't seem to cause them that much problem, although there, there are other concerns about the Japanese economy. So we're at an interesting situation. You know, our debt isn't, historically speaking, high. On the other hand, of course, uh, it is going up in peacetime, and that's not what has happened in the past. The past history is that it always goes up in wars, and peacetime is a time when you know, pretty much whatever the government does, so long as it doesn't go berserk, the long-term growth of the economy, equally the effects of inflation, have tended to bring the debt ratio down. And you see, that is not happening at the moment. So there is a cause for concern, not a cause for panic, but you know, there are consequences. Yeah. You talked earlier about how generally governments don't choose to pay off national debt as opposed to other things. But what, one thing that's interesting about the recent economic situation is that certain politicians have made paying off national debt a big priority. So what do you think has changed in that regard? Why, why has this now become something that politicians are advocating? Well, I, th I think that there's, obviously, there's a change in the style of economic policy, although this is, is in fact, a, a kind of reversion to, say, shall we say, 19th century ideals of economic policy. So clearly the Keynesian ethos of policymaking, which lasted from about 1945 to 1980, uh, lost out to the sort of more monetarist, Thatcherite, and um, sort of more what one would now call, horrible word, neoliberal type of ideas. And that, of course, is, is sort of very heavily dependent on uh, the idea of free financial markets. And the freer the financial markets are, the more difficulty the government is going to have in running a large negative financial position. I think I said a little while ago that one of the reasons why the government could actually get away with this very large debt it inherited from the Second World War was at that period, uh, the financial markets were not free. You know, the, the banks essentially did what they were told by the government. And if, if the government essentially told them that they were to hold the national debt and there was nothing they could do about it, then they would, they would have to do it like that. These days, the uh, government doesn't do that. And of course, then, then that means that if, if the financial markets were to get rather jittery about the, the prospects for Britain, then things could become nasty relatively quickly. Not terribly quickly in the British case, because the British bonds tend to be very long-lived compared to other... They're, they're no longer the perpetuities like consoles. The last console was um, got rid of 
only two or three years ago, in 2015, by George Osborne. But on the whole, the maturity of our national debt is quite quite long. So if interest rates do start to go up, it'll take some time for it really to begin to be very painful. But eventually it will. So there is obviously an argument for saying that, well, you know, we've got a breathing space here, but we ought to be doing something about the problem. Furthermore, if you begin to look into the future, and the government has sort of instituted an interesting thing through the Office of Budget Responsibility, where they actually try and project the national debt for the next half century. And that's not looking very good. And it's not looking very good not for the backward-looking reason that they're expecting another war to come along, although one cannot rule that out, but what is worrying about the future is essentially the problem of ageing in the population. You know, one can see the population is going to age, they're going to have longer retirements, they're going to have much greater healthcare issues. If you are kind of tra- trying to project the public finances on an assumption that the government is going to be taking roughly the same kind of proportion of taxation as it's doing at the moment, then this is going to run into difficulties. And, well, the latest forecast suggests, yeah, this little blip after the 2008 financial crisis will be surmounted. Gradually, you know, the debt, debt will stop going up for a little while, But then these long-term ageing things take over. And then if you just project it, and this is, one's got to realise, this is a fairly mindless projection. It's not necessarily a forecast of what's going to happen. But if you project what you think these pension and, and healthcare expenditure are going to mean, then they would say that, well, we would be back up to a national debt ratio of over 200% in about 50 years. So that doesn't look very happy. On the other hand, 50 years is quite a long time. You know, see, and, and if you go back in the history, well, in 1945, we were up at 200%, but in, in about sort of 30 to 40 years after that, it went right down to 30 to 40%. So that is perhaps a cycle of the kind of, of the speed and of the magnitude of the last sort of two or three hundred years. That, I think, is, you know, what the, the OBR are saying is that, well, you know, this is a slow process. Again, one doesn't need to panic immediately, but fairly soon, you know, the government is going to have to take some serious decisions about how it intends to really to, to handle this ageing crisis. What advice might you offer to today's government or future governments about how they should handle the current national debt? Well, I think there is a a rule in economics about what you need to do to keep a a debt sustainable, to stop it spiralling out of control. And there is a a nice little formula, which doesn't require too much uh, mathematics to, to work through. But it essentially is a balance between the growth rate of the economy and the rate of interest and the the proportion that the national debt has to the size of the economy. Currently, at the moment, the British economy comes out fairly favourably out of this equation. It doesn't really need a great surplus to keep its national debt under control. The real problem with the British economy is it doesn't have a surplus at all at the moment. Uh, and it, the, the government is working its way to try to get back to that. And it's, it's I think, nearly, nearly there. 
but that's right. Whereas if you if you apply the same kind of uh, equation to a country like Greece at the height of the Greek crisis, you will see that that what this equation would would suggest is that really the the Greek government at the height of its crisis would have had to be running a surplus of about. 17% of its national income. In other words, it, it's taking in tax 17% of the national income without returning to its citizens anything in the way of roads, hospitals, things like that, just in order to stop its national debt growing, you see, even before it actually, actually starts. And, and most people at the time obviously thought, well, that's just, that's just not politically feasible, Really, and indeed, it hasn't been politically feasible. So one just has to go on negotiating. So, so that's that's one important thing. The other very important thing is that it is very dangerous to borrow in a foreign currency, and by and large, the British have been lucky; they haven't done that. This is the thing that actually, essentially, surprised the Greeks and the Spanish in recent years, which is the advent of the euro. And I think a lot of people did not appreciate when the euro started was that essentially that meant that the countries within the eurozone were effectively operating as if they were using a foreign currency. It was no longer a currency that was controlled by their own central bank. And if they got into a bit of difficulty, then the government would lean on your own central bank to expand the money supply and, and, and you get out of it that way. But of course, no, after the euro, the Greeks found that their national debt was denominated in euros. And the euro, the supply of euros is determined by the European central bank. And the Greeks have very little control of that. And indeed, the, the constitution of the European central bank uh, expressly forbade it from bailing out individual governments. And that that's what really made the the kind of euro crisis such a defining moment in, in, in European um, politics. And, you know, fortunately, uh, almost by, well, I say it by accident, of course, the, the British government decided it didn't want to go into the euro, so avoided it. I don't think the real reason why the British government uh, decided not to go into the, the euro was because it was worried about a currency crisis. Uh, the general view around about 2000 was that currency crises were, uh, in, de, in, the, in developed economy terms were a thing of the past. So, you know, 2008 came as a rather rude shock. But that has been a great boom to the British economy that it's actually managed to sidestep this euro crisis and indeed is one of the reasons why our interest rates are low and uh, on the whole, the international financial markets rather view us a lot more favourably than perhaps they should. That was Martin Slater. The National Debt, A Short History, is out now in the UK, published by Hearst. And in the US, it's set to be published in September by Oxford University Press. Now, if you're interested in the latest goings-on in science and technology then you may well want to check out the Science Focus podcast, which is produced by our colleagues at BBC Focus magazine. Recent episodes have tackled subjects as diverse as plastic pollution, space travel and dinosaurs, all explored by experts in their field. You can get hold of it via your preferred podcast provider or by visiting sciencefocus.com. Well, that's about it for today's episode. 
but we'll be back on Thursday to discover the history of England's forests. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 